Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that we see the person and work of Jesus most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week will be out of Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, and it can be found on page 1044 in the Bible provided. Preaching this week is Dodds Pengra, one of our pastors. Before I read the sermon passage, would you please pray with me? Gracious God, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that your word would not return void, that you would work in our hearts such that your son Jesus Christ is exalted, and we are encouraged, challenged, and transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he, being Jesus, sent two of, his, two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to everyone joining us online. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, the first Sunday of a new Christian year. And the word Advent means arrival or coming. And so this season, for reflecting upon repenting of our sins as we long for and prepare for Christmas. So even as we deck our halls with lights and decorations and joyful music, the church has traditionally seen fit to spend a few weeks in, in sober contemplation of the full meaning of the coming of Christ. Why is his coming such good news? Why, do, why, do we, why did and why do we need him to come in the first place? We really are here to feel the weight of the darkness in our hearts and our world which serves to increase our sense and feeling of longing as we anticipate the coming of our Savior. Now, it may seem, it may seem peculiar that we are beginning this season with a text normally reserved for Palm Sunday, but actually it's, it's quite appropriate because the scriptures are, are full of, of advents. Advent is found in the beginning of human history. As Adam and Eve are cast from Eden, they begin longing 
for the promised seed of the woman who will be sent to crush the serpent's head and readmit them to the garden. But the Bible, the Bible also ends with an advent. Jesus says, I am coming soon. The Spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. So Advent is the Alpha and Omega hope of Scripture. It is humanity's first prayer. It is humanity's last prayer. Truly, Scripture leaves us perpetually eager for our Lord's arrival. And Advent is found not only in the birth of Christ, but in our text today, in Jesus' triumphal entry, our Savior comes as King. Today's text speaks not only to how we perceive Jesus' triumphal entry, but also reminds us about our own expectations as to how we should live in light of his coming. Because Jesus' advent brings new creation. Our text shows us the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life. And so ever since the end of Luke 9, Jesus has, has made up his mind that he is going to Jerusalem. He is heading up to Jerusalem. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, he speaks to Moses and Elijah, and, and Luke tells us that all three of them talk about Jesus' departure, departure, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem. And the interesting thing there is that the word for departure there in Greek is actually the word exodus. So the exodus of Jesus is not just about his death, as the word departure suggests. Jesus is not just leaving he is beginning, he is inaugurating a new, a greater exodus. Verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. So Jesus makes his way up, that's important. Jesus makes his way up to the Mount of Olives. And olive trees throughout the Bible really are a symbol of new creation. When we look to the beginning of the biblical narrative, we see after the flood, Noah sends a dove, which is representative of God's spirit, out to find land. The dove comes back with an olive, olive branch, and this signifies the new creation that was coming. So in creating something new here, Jesus is, is moving strategically, and he is reenacting Israel's conquest of the land. He passes Jericho before he enters Jerusalem. And all of this, all of these movements, all of these moments, all of these choices are packed with meaning and symbolism. And it's true. It's, it's, we're, we're tempted to look at this story and to not understand its implications. I can, I can tell you that when I first heard this story as a middle schooler, as just sort of a, an occasional visitor to church, it didn't seem like much of a triumphal entry in any respect. And yet, according to Josephus, there, were, there could have been more than two million people gathered in Jerusalem during Passover week as Jesus was making his entry. And just to give you an idea, Jerusalem was about twice the size of Woodland Heights. It's pretty small, but two million people packed in that, in that dense size of city. But with all that going on, can we imagine the expectancy of, of such an entry? When Jesus enters Jerusalem, everything changes. As Luke tells it, Jesus has been moving about in secret, 
teaching in private, refusing to draw attention to his miracles, and speaking in coded parables. He, he cleanses a leper, but then warns, see that you say nothing to anyone. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus instructs him to tell no one about it. And after the transfiguration, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. So Jesus, Jesus seems to be leading an anti-PR campaign. He hasn't, he hasn't sought out the power centers of Israel. He has been in the sort of despised backwater of Galilee and, and the outskirts of the land. He has not yet visited Jerusalem. He's been walking everywhere, always on the move, and to this point, always on foot. So it's very important that we see how Jesus' advent inaugurates a different kind of royal kingdom. For instance, from verse, from verse 29 to verse 35, we see the writer devote five verses to Jesus' means of transportation. Let's read it. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Again, it's very curious to devote five verses to this. So we should, we should really have our eyes opened and our, and our ears pricked. Jesus has traveled on foot for the last 12 miles in his journey to Jerusalem, but now he chooses an animal for the last few miles. Why? It's not coincidental. Jesus' timing is intentional. The places, Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Bethpage, Bethany, these places are intentional. These movements are intentional. But for our purposes today, let's, let's talk about donkeys. Jesus' request for a cult calls up all of these images and scriptures from the Old Testament where animals that had not been sat upon were used for holy endeavors. So Jesus' choice of vehicle should really help us not be confused. It should help us remember. It should help us look back. In the same way that a virgin womb and a virgin tomb were chosen to carry Jesus, remember that, a tomb that had never been filled, a brand new tomb, a womb that had never been filled, a virgin birth. Christ now chooses an unused donkey, a, a virgin donkey, if you will, to have the honor of carrying the king of kings. But why, why a colt? Why a donkey? Most certainly, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of, of Zechariah 9, the coming king as humble donkey rider. But let's go back even further to, to Genesis. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, 
binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So according to Jacob here, the kingship of Judah that will arrive comes with a donkey and its foal. In other words, the kingdom and its king is, it is going to come with peace and humility. So when Jesus sends two disciples to get a donkey and a colt, they know that Jesus is claiming to be that offspring of Judah, the promised king, the one who will hold that ruling scepter. And it calls to mind a few other scriptures. Psalm 46, he makes wars to cease in all the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariot's fire. Isaiah 2, he beats swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. The nations cease to learn war. The coming humble king will transform weapons of war into instruments of gardening and flourishing. In this text, we also see this complete obedience and humility from Jesus' disciples. They pick him up and sit him, sit him on the colt. That word in the Greek, interestingly enough, is the same word used in the parable of the Good Samaritan when he sets the Jewish man on his colt to take him into town. It's a raw picture of the humility and honor that they are showing to their king. And his request, it does, to get a donkey. It does. It sounds bizarre. It doesn't sound like an arrival a king should make, and yet the disciples obediently go to Bethany. And those in Bethany, when asked for the donkey and her foal, they, they don't protest. When asked for that colt, they do not protest. They, they have already known Jesus as the one who has raised Lazarus. So to them, Jesus is already king. He can have whatever he wants. In the same way this morning, are we as ready for the coming of his kingdom? What does his kingdom require of us that we, may, that we may already know we're not willing to give, or we may even suspect that we're not willing to give. As we are stepping into Advent, where are our hearts focused? What are we thinking about most often? What are we feeling most often? What are we worried about most often, angry about most often? Where, where are our emotions? Where are our thoughts? Are we so enmeshed with the anxieties and stress and materialism of, of our everyday that when we are asked to live in the spirit of our King's coming, are our minds distracted and elsewhere? Or, do, or, or does this promise of becoming King steal our thoughts and our minds? And do we know that Jesus' advent as triumphal king has more than just earthly implications? Do we know that Jesus' advent brings cosmic implications? Let's read verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives again, very interesting, the movements. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Perhaps there were those looking at this arrival from Jerusalem and thought that this isn't going to be much. You know, they, Jerusalem and, and the people, they had seen other upstarts and revolutionaries. Jesus would become for them seemingly a sad, tragic story. A man with huge promises, good ideas, but ultimately one who can't deliver. He, he's going to die in a week. Maybe we struggle in the same way. We, maybe we can, maybe it's easy for us to look at the church and society as a whole in the midst of so much division and think, if this is how the kingdom comes, I'm, I'm not sure that I want it. We speak of love and yet we find an absence of it. We talk of peace and yet we, we just keep fighting. We speak of unity and yet we just see a multitude of divided camps. It's a continual temptation to see the church as merely another failed institution. When we think this way, we're tempted that the only hope that we have is spiritual. We'll say, this world isn't our home. Perhaps we think that we really don't have a future here on this earth. And so all this talk about a kingdom, a kingdom, a coming kingdom, is maybe hard to get on board with or get our hands on. It's very important for us to know that Jesus does not settle for anything in his action. These are conscious choices that he's making as he rides into Jerusalem. He doesn't sneak into the city. He rides in as loudly as he possibly can. For him, the time of ministering in relative obscurity and silence, that's over. And this isn't just the courage of a king. This is his wisdom. Jesus' choices and timing here are on purpose in fulfillment of so much scripture. It's Jesus making a claim for his kingship here. He is a conquering king, humble and riding on a donkey. However, when we look, when we look at the visible surface of verses 36 to 38, Jesus' advent looks much lower and weaker than the advents of other great kings. But if we look deeper, I think we can see maybe something a little bit greater. When we look at verses 37 through 38, some important, some important things emerge from the disciples' acclamation. We put those verses back on, this, on, the, on the wall behind me just so that we can see them again, verses 37 and 38. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then verse 38 as well. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. Just some of the elements here. Praising God for all the mighty works they had seen. Power. Blessed is the king who comes, this coming king. Peace in heaven, heaven. Glory in the highest, glory. We see these, these pieces of power and coming and heaven and glory. Such a heralding should make us reconsider what Jesus meant in Luke 21, 27, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Many people think of that as, as a future event, that Jesus comes physically from heaven to earth at the end of time, but could it be that Jesus is touching here on imagery found in the prophets, specifically in Daniel? 
Let's read that together. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Once again in these verses, we see here power coming, heaven in the cloud, and glory. In our text today, Jesus ascends up from Jericho to the Mount of Olives, some 3,000 feet in altitude being set on a royal and kingly donkey, signifying a kingdom of peace, and he rides toward the temple where the actual spirit of God is residing, where the glory cloud of God has always been enthroned since the Exodus. In doing this, Jesus is riding up to the earthly copy of the ancient throne room of God. And what is he riding over? Palm branches and cloaks. The Gospel of Luke tells us that the crowd spread their garments on the ground before him. The Gospel of John adds that they laid branches before him. And in Matthew's Gospel, there's both present. And laying your cloak before a person was like rolling out the red carpet in the ancient world. In doing so, you were placing yourself under the authority of that person. So in this entry, Jesus is being given power and dominion over the people who submit to his kingship. And as John's gospel records, the palm branches thrown down before Jesus were the very covering for Israel in the wilderness. They were a symbol of God's glory cloud that gave shade and cover to Israel. So could it be that these branches, these cloaks, are like a carpet of clouds that elevate Jesus on high as he ascends into God's cloud to take his throne? Could it be that this is just maybe in part a fulfillment of Daniel 7? To the crowds and the Pharisees, it, it probably looked futile. To the world, this entry turns out just like many other stories of conquests, conquest. it's very anticlimactic. And yet in this, Advent, in this Advent, the Son of Man is reversing all expectations of an earthly temporary reign and instead offers the terms of an eternal kingdom. Jesus rides into Jerusalem in order to win a great victory. He rides into Jerusalem to conquer the enemy. The people thought Rome was the enemy, but Jesus had come to defeat a much more powerful enemy. He didn't come just to defeat Caesar. He came to defeat Satan. He didn't come to, bring, to, to just deliver Israel from Rome. He came to deliver us all from sin. He didn't come to bring death. He came to defeat death. And he doesn't, he doesn't conquer as we expect. He conquers as the Bible teaches us to expect. He does not come to bring peace for Israel alone. He comes to bring peace to all of us, to all of creation. Advent teaches us that the kingdom of God comes confidently and yet peacefully, beautifully, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he doesn't initiate his kingdom with traditional weapons of warfare and dominance. He rides out to battle on a donkey, and he defeats his, our greatest enemies with self-sacrificial love. He was the one who said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom comes peacefully, and today in Advent, that is still true. That is still true. And so if the nature, if the nature of Jesus' Advent is inaugurating a kingdom of peace, how, how might we respond with our lives? How should we welcome this type of Advent? How should we welcome this type of king? I just want, to consider, I just want us to consider one thing. We look at his disciples in this passage. We see the willingness of his disciples to follow the commands of Jesus in this narrative. They embody his humility and submission by spreading their garments. When Jesus tells them to go and get the animal for his arrival, they go about the Lord's business even when, they're, even when the message and command that he gives them is strange. We don't often think we don't often think of humility as an attribute of God. If God is glorious and exalted, then he must be haughty and proud and self-centered. And we, and we think this way because we would be haughty and proud and self-centered if we were God. And we try to do that a lot, right? But, but the gospel of Advent reveals a very different God that we imagine. It announces that the eternal Son of God, creator, Lord, king of all creation, humbled himself for our sake and took the form of a servant. And we are called to be imitators of that. We're called to imitate God specifically in his humility by the spirit that he has given us to do that very thing. Most of us, most of us, humility or, or sort of a, a lens of humility is not how we've practiced celebrating Christmas. It's not, for most of us, it's not how we've practiced celebrating Christmas. More often, pride, self-centeredness, and greed rule the day, particularly in Advent. We become prickly if we're overlooked on someone's Christmas list or if the presents that we get aren't as nice as the ones that we give. We envy those who receive presents that we wanted and we want our own way. And when we don't get it, we become testy and edgy and disagreeable. All the tinsel in the world, all the Christmas lights, all the carefully and colorfully wrapped presents cannot make Christmas Christmas if the humility of God is not celebrated and manifested in our humility. To grasp the Christmas gospel and to celebrate it well, we must become like little children. We must humble ourselves and become servants. After all, when God calls each one of us to become like a child, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. And this is a king who welcomes children, who welcomes each one of us gladly, graciously, continually. In closing, I'd like to read a poem, um, and I pray just stirs our affections for the Lord. It's no surprise who it's from, Malcolm Geit, an, American, an Anglican priest and poet. It's one of my favorites currently. But this is what he writes. This is about the triumphal entry. 
Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart. The Savior comes, but will I welcome him? O crowds of easy feeling, make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he is bringing changes their tune. I know what lies behind. The surface flourish that so quickly fades, self-interest and fearful guardedness. The hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come, break my resistance, and make me your home. Make me your home. Sojourn, may we this Advent season open our homes, our possessions, our hearts to the nature of Christ's peaceful rule. May we believe the words, all things are mine since I am his. May we ask the Lord to convict us toward repentance where we're limiting his authority and his kingship in order to have our own peaceful dominion and control. And that from the humble dining tables of our homes, the ministries of this church family, through the, through the hands of every saint present here, may we point people to the nature of this kingdom and his kingdom. Not only a spiritual kingdom, not only an earthly one, but an actual cosmic kingdom that comes to supplant the inner idols of our hearts. Let's welcome him, Sojourn. He is our king. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, we thank you for this Advent season in which we celebrate your coming. In these weeks, grant to all here a deepening in humility and service. May our minds, our hearts, dote upon our, and, and long for your coming. Lord, we need you just as much today as when we first believed. Lord, we always need you. Convict us of our idolatry. Release us from it through your mercy and forgiveness and transform us more into reflectors of your grace and light. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your world, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.